Jan Swafford is an American composer and the author of several musical biographies. This is Jan Swafford. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Duck Tech. All right, I'm here with Jan Swafford. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Great to be back, Duncan, for yet another exploration of something or other. Yes, yes. Um, well, we, we've done uh, a few podcasts together now, and we've covered uh, a couple composers, uh, some popular uh, genres of music, and uh, you have now picked uh, for this episode, I think very wisely, the composer Igor Stravinsky, um, who went through a number of different styles, considered to be one of the most uh, influential composers of the 20th, 20th century. So it's a, a real treat to be able to discuss him with you today. Well, Stravinsky is one of my heroes and one of my influences and um, somebody I've been involved with in the very beginning. I remember Ride of Spring was one of the first records I ever bought. And I remember blasting it on the stereo while my mother and I were eating dinner. And <laughs> she said, honey, I think maybe we could turn that down a little <laughs> bit. Um, so I've been involved with him from the beginning and just learning more and more over time. So I had this idea that we could start with an early piece of his. He, his father was a famous Russian uh, singer, bass and uh, opera singer. So he grew up in a very kind of arty family, but he wasn't that musical at the beginning. But then he got involved with Rimsky-Korsakov, the great late romantic Russian composer, and uh, just suddenly blossomed in this extraordinary way. So I thought maybe we could start with this little piece that he wrote for piano when he was studying with Rimsky-Korsakov and then he orchestrated it later. So have you ever heard that piece before? I have not, no. It's just a charming little piece and uh, really quite fresh. Um, so what I'm getting at, I, I, can't, I can't remember how old he was when he wrote this, maybe he's you know, around 20 or so. It's just, it's a unique piece, no, no big deal, but um, he's a very talented kid is what I'm getting at. Well, yeah, and, and it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, his age. He was, I, I believe he was like a, a law student at yeah. this time. And unlike a Mozart or a Beethoven, he was not some child prodigy. He uh, he, he really had to sort of fight to, to right. you know, have music be his life. Um, do you think that's uh, significant at all for his development as a composer? So he wasn't a prodigy exactly. And he was not particularly interested in music at the beginning, maybe because he wanted to avoid what dad was doing. That may have had something to do with it. But once he started seriously getting into music, his development was extraordinarily fast. 
Um, he, what he did in his 20s was pretty unbelievable. So he was a talented kid. He was not a prodigy, but then he uh, wrote some pieces, one of which was an orchestra piece that was heard by um, Sergei Diaghilev, who was who had put together the Ballet Russe, which was intended to be the kind of ultimate, innovative, brilliant Russian ballet troupe. And it was an absolutely historic troupe. And, and Diaghilev, who was a supreme um, promoter, uh, put together, started commissioning every important composer in sight to write for the troupe. And Stravinsky was an early discoverer of his. He heard a piece just happened to on an orchestra concert an early orchestra piece of Stravinsky, hired him to do some arrangements for the ballet and then commissioned a ballet. And uh, a reporter was showing up before the premiere of the first of those, um, The Firebird. And it was about a week early before the premiere and Diaghilev pointed in, across the room and said, see that kid over there? His name is Igor Stravinsky and a week from now he's going to be famous. And that's exactly what happened with the Firebird. So let's play a little of the Firebird. You know about Gurdjieff? No, I don't. Who's he? He he was having a fantastic career. And he did this uh, Ravel Bolero online that had millions, I mean, on YouTube that had millions of hits. He's a... Absolutely brilliant, but he's also a great friend of Vladimir Putin. Ah, and he has destroyed it's destroyed his career outside Russia. I, he, he's he probably will never come back. And he was one of the leading international conductors. He's probably screwed. Anyway, I still think he may have the best firebird. This is the Mariinsky Orchestra. <laughs> This is just incredible orchestral brilliance that has a lot to do with the influence of Debussy and Ravel, but also of, of there's a kind of innate Russian gift for orchestration that nobody really understands, but it's true. And meanwhile, Stravinsky had studied with Rimsky-Korsakov, who was one of the great orchestral masters of orchestral color and wrote, a, you know, one of the early and most important um, textbooks of orchestration. So meanwhile, there's this tremendous rhythmic energy and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, this is his Russian period. He's intensely involved in Russian music and Russian folk music and so forth and so on. And he's 27 years old. Um, and so in a period of four years, he wrote three revolutionary ballets for Diaghilev that were just changed music. 
with the third one being the climax. But the second one was um, um, Petrushka, a story of a Russian carnival puppet, traditional Russian carnival puppet. And let's listen to a little bit of this, quite different in, in style, not in style, but in, in tone from, um, from the Firebird. Okay, so what do you what do you, you you tell me your response? Do you know this piece well? I I don't know it well. Um, my immediate reaction, or I guess my my immediate first question, I'd like to pose to you: When we talk about these three ballets being revolutionary, could could you help place us into the mind of someone from that time? What about this piece in particular? Let's say. Uh, was was breaking new ground musically that would have surprised listeners of that era. The style of orchestration clearly comes out of the Russian tradition with influences from Ravel and Debussy, but it is a new voice in the orchestra. Uh, so it has colors and effects that just had never been heard before. And he was developing rapidly in this. It's also the combination of this voluptuous brilliant orchestration with extremely simple melodic things. This is folk music, basically. Sort of little cell-like melodic bits that are derived from various Russian traditions. Uh, so he, his kind of Russianism is, uh, is very different than, than somebody like Rimsky-Korsakov, who was much more romantic and expansive. Um, and here, here we're going to get into the issue of, I mean, the music, Firebird and Petrushka were just so gorgeous and voluptuous that they, they were immediate hits. They're revolutionary. We get the impression that revolutionary pieces are all, always misunderstood and hard to understand at the beginning. These just overwhelmed people. They just took them by by storm. Meanwhile, this is being danced by Nijinsky, the great Nijinsky, one of the legendary dancers of all time, who played the puppet Petrushka. It was one of his most incredible roles. Um, and all that combined with, you know, what Diaghilev had assembled for the Ballet Russe with the, some of the greatest designers and choreographers in the world was just, was just spectacular. And he had discovered Stravinsky, one of the greatest composers. It was, it was kind of a triple whammy that was working for Diaghilev at this point. So it just blew people away. So Stravinsky, meanwhile, was just his, his imagination was expanding, 
And he was on, he, he remembered that he was on a train somewhere and he got this idea for a ballet about taking place in primeval Russia in which a virgin is chosen to dance to death. And he be immediately began to get musical ideas for it. And this is where his imagination just took off into a stratosphere that very few artists have ever lived in. <laughs> it, was, it was a transformation of the possibilities of music that that have only happened a few times in history. And it's one of those pieces that has never lost its ability to be shocking. I'm going to play actually maybe three or four bits of yeah. this. Yeah. So anyway, Stravinsky went to Diaghilev with this idea and Diaghilev said, great. And, I'm, and basically he said, I'm going to have Nijinsky choreograph it. It's his first job as a choreographer. And this gets into the famous story of the premiere of the Rite of Spring, the ballet, in which there was a riot incomparable in the history of music. I mean, people were screaming and punching each other out, and Ravel was standing up in the middle screaming, genius, genius, genius. And um, Stravinsky finally went backstage where you couldn't really hear the music anymore, and he found... Um, Nijinsky standing in a, a screaming numbers at his dancers so they could so they could stay on the beat and Stravinsky was having to hold him by the coattails to keep him from running onto the stage it was absolute chaos but the thing is that the chaos has been associated with the music ever since it really had more to do with the choreography than it did with the music and I, I encourage everybody to go online on YouTube and look for the reconstruction of Dijinsky's choreography of uh, the Rite of Spring because it is mind-boggling. It's an anti-ballet, um, which is just, you know, weird and spasmodic and people jumping up and down and coming on their coming down on their heels. And it is, it is, but once you see it, it becomes, I think, indelibly wedded to the music. And the fact is. After a while, there was such a chaos in the hall, you couldn't even hear the music anymore. And the orchestra were kind of scared to death. Um, and it, so it was going. And here's one of the things about Stravinsky. I want to get into the idea of, in his tremendous stylistic um, evolution, what stayed the same. And I think what stayed the same is this tremendous ability to nail something right at the outset. You hear the beginning of a Stravinsky piece and it defines a sound world that is unmistakable, distinctive, and absolutely crystalline in its, in its sense of being what it is, whatever it may be, it is what it is. And the very beginning of the Rite of Spring, which is a solo on the high bassoon, and there's a story that when this started, a well-known composer was in the audience and turned to his friend and said, what instrument is that? Mm. Because this is way up in the high register of the bassoon that had never been treated this way before. And actually it turns out this, this very kind of weird moaning melody is a quote of a Romanian folk song. <laughs> Some kind of a, you know, very tribal kind of tune, though most of the tunes in the Rite of Spring, these little, bits of pieces 
are Stravinsky's own or they come from Russian folk traditions. But here's the beginning, which already defines something that is unlike anything ever heard before. So what do you get from that? So to me, it, it reminds me of, uh, what is that, uh, that sort of classic uh, woodwind song of, of like uh, synonymous with daybreak, um, mm. w whatever it is. It, it, it feels, I mean, maybe it's just the title, but it feels very spring-like and, uh, but also foreboding of something. I think for, yeah, I, I agree with all that. And there's a kind of vine-like intertwining of things. Stravinsky wrote this piece kind of in a state of ecstasy. There are letters where he's saying things like, I feel I've discovered the secret rhythm of spring. <laughs> it's why he denied writing these later, but he did uh, writing these letters. So, and meanwhile, the, you realize Brahms had not been dead 15 years when this was written. So it is a voice and a, and a kind of music that is just so out of the blue, even different than the previous two ballets. You can see the connection sort of in retrospect, but it's just, it's just wham, a new era in music uh, that maybe hadn't happened since Beethoven's Eroica. Um, so it gets into the, the series of tableaus and one of them, I also, people who know the Rite of Spring well, I suggest go and listen to the piano version because it is amazingly raw. And this is what would have been played for the, for the valet rehearsals. Without the orchestral garb, which is gorgeous and voluptuous, uh, you realize how kind of primeval and raw this thing is. So Stravinsky was playing it for Diaghilev and he started playing this, um, this section with these pounding chords. And um, he said, um, Diaghilev stopped him and said, Dieter, does these chords go on long? And Stravinsky said, yes, they do, dear. <laughs> now, the thing that's besides the, the rhythm, and Stravinsky always had this dynamic pulsing rhythm and everything he did that was entirely his own. He's using the strings as percussion instruments in a way that strings had never been used before, strings as percussion. 
And this absolutely raw primeval uh, power um, that is totally expressive of the, the idea of the ballet and the idea of the story. Here it is, the, the, the augurs of spring. So once again, we have these very simple repeated little cell-like bits of motifs that are repeated over and over. And that is how he put pieces together in these days. And they're all very much founded in Russian folk music. Yeah, and, and when you said that the strings are come across as percussion, I mean, they do really sound like the first time I heard this, I thought it was some kind of drum. Yeah. You know? <laughs> So he's redefining instruments at the same time. Uh, so again, well, here let me let me go into a couple of myths. I've said that the reason for the for the uh, the riot at the premiere was not really entirely or even mostly the music; it was the choreography. And again, when you see Nijinsky's choreography for that section, they are they are doing the equivalent of that music. I mean, they those the the dancers are jumping up and pounding the stage. Um, another myth is that really new things in music or any other art take long to be understood and they're rejected. Rarely happens that way. A year after the premiere, the, you know, Riotous premiere, the Riotous Spring was done in a concert in Paris and Stravinsky was carried through the streets of Paris on the shoulders of a cheering crowd. So, and not that really that long after the Rite of Spring was in a Walt Disney cartoon. So, so much for the idea that revolution takes a long time to be appreciated. It was very much appreciated. I mean, there are people who didn't like it. There are always people who don't like it. But, um, and here's another thing. I'm going to, here's something that is significant. And I, I say this in every other thing that I say in, in public. <laughs> um. When you go to music school, you're told that musical innovation happens for technical reasons, people extending technique. No, well, that's true, but they're extending technique at the service of expression. All the really innovative pieces in Western music, and I'm thinking of pieces like the Monteverdi, um, um, pieces like, um, uh, Papea, the coronation of Papea, uh, 
Beethoven's uh, Eroica Symphony, which was originally titled uh, Bonaparte. It was about Napoleon, the Rite of Spring, about this ride in primeval Russia. Schoenberg's Pierrot Lunaire, which was setting these very strange poems. Every one of the innovations in all those pieces came out of expressing an idea that was beyond, that was a non-musical idea, a dramatic or poetic or literary idea. Musical revolution does not come out of a technical reason or a desire simply to be innovative. It comes from expressing an idea. And everything about the Rite of Spring is at the service of expressing the idea of a primeval, um, ominous, fatal rite ceremony. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I, I, I appreciate you saying that because a lot of the times, and I feel, uh, I see this a lot with like poetry, like contemporary poetry these days, is very much, uh, sometimes I feel like people are trying to innovate for innovation's sake, yeah. whereas the, this is, the, clearly this is innovative, but it's, it's not, uh, it, it's not up its own ass with it, you know, it, it, yeah. It, it's, yeah. People are doing that because that's what they're taught in college, that innovation doesn't have anything to do with anything but technique. It's not true. So when I went to Yale Music School and, there, and the composers, a lot of the composers around there were writing music as if they were Germans in 1917, you know, they were writing in the vein of German expressionism of that period. And it's as if I just looked at this, I said, their assumption is that that writing, what you write has nothing to do with who you are and where you live and what period you live in. And that's nonsense. Yeah. And all these pieces, expressionism came out of expression, not, not tech, just technique. The techniques followed the expression. They were there to, to convey something. Um, and one of the things about Schoenberg, people have been so obsessed with his, um, technique, which he talked about. I'm not sure it was a good idea that he did. Schoenberg was expressing something all the time. He said at some point, I can't imagine music that doesn't express something. So I listened to the violin concerto. It was written when the World War II was imminent. I think that's what that piece is about. Meanwhile, by the way, Stravinsky and Schoenberg we're going to get into were tremendous rivals. They were the sort of two sides of contemporary music and everybody lined up behind one or the other of them. Early on, they were friendly, they hung out together. And it's, I've read that really it's almost the press that separated them. The press turned them into two rival camps. So they became that and they kept at a distance. Um, the Biggie and Tupac of their time. Yeah, well, the, there are always, there tend to be two leading figures. There, there's a tradition of two leading figures in artistic forms at a given time. Think of, of uh, Picasso and Matisse. They weren't exactly rivals, but they weren't exactly friends. They would sometimes get together, but they kind of kept a certain wary distance from each other. And Faulkner and Hemingway, same thing. Two very different kinds of writers. They admired each other greatly. They also criticized each other and they really kind of stayed out of each other's way. Um, it's a very interesting thing that happens over and over in the arts. Yeah. So we don't have that much time. I guess we should go on. Um, so Stravinsky had written three stupendous ballets, the last one, the most stupendous, the most revolutionary. And everybody said that's who Stravinsky is. 
And that one of the things about genius is they just don't do what you expect them and want them to do. I think that's a general, a general thing. They're always surprising you and they're always surprising themselves. I think one of the things about genius is that it comes out of you and, um, and you don't know where it comes from either and it surprises even you. I mean, Stravinsky said once, I am the vessel through which the rite of spring came into the world. Um, it was there to be written and it happened to be me. Well, of course, that's not entirely true. It had everything to do with him. But anyway, he, he wrote one more thing that was, and it, it was an incredible effort for him, which was the last of his big, very Russian-oriented, um, extraordinarily innovative pieces. But he's already kind of, he's already kind of pulling back into something more austere. And this is Lainos, The Wedding. It's an absolutely wild piece. It is as wild as The Rite of Spring, but it's very much more restrained. So this is a, uh, Lainos is a piece that gave Stravinsky a lot of trouble. He started it, I mean, he wrote Firebird Petrushkin Ride of Spring between 1909 and 1913. He started Lenos, this picture of a Russian wedding, in 1914. He worked on it for a while. He couldn't nail it down. He did a version of it with full orchestra. He left it behind. He had this idea for a while that he wanted to have player pianos accomplishing, accompanying the whole thing. That could, he couldn't get that to work. And it was an insane idea anyway, but he was already cutting down, cutting down. And he didn't finish it till uh, 1923. But again, it has this enormous kind of driving rhythmic power, an enormous freshness of sound. Again, it sounds like nothing else on earth. I always said that Lenos is like tribal music of a tribe that never existed. It's a complete invention unto itself. And it is absolutely insanely um, um, obsessive. Um, and here's an example of it. It's man, just the voices in the beginning are, are yeah. very, uh, I don't know, kind of hypnotic. Yeah, yeah. When you hear this piece alive, it, hypnotic is the word. It's absolutely mesmerizing. Yeah. And but he, what he ended up with is, an, is a scoring of four pianos and percussion. It's this very spiky, crystalline, very restrained um, sound 
that turned out to be perfect. You know, he'd gone through a whole series of ideas. He couldn't, he couldn't get to it. So he was already in beginning in a way to, to cut down his means. And this is also the last of the big Russian pieces in a way. Meanwhile, the war came in 1918. So he decided to write, you know, he didn't, he wanted to write something small and compact um, that could be carried around easily and was a sort of practical piece for wartime um, performance. And that's L'Histoire du Soldat, The Soldier's Tale. So he wrote this little kind of chamber piece, and it is at times in a recording, you're just kind of stunned by how simple it is. Though I have to say, the first time I heard this live, I was kind of stunned by the impact of it live. But um, it, I was saying he was sort of cutting down his means and um, Lenos, here he is cutting down to bone dry. <laughs> And this is the beginning in a way of what we call Stravinsky's neoclassic period that was sort of something that started happening during the war and very much in the post-war. This is the Royal March. It's a, soul, it's a tale, it's a kind of folk tale of a soldier and a fiddle and the devil. Um, and his, actually as his, as his means are getting drier and more restrained, in a way his melodic uh, voice in this and this piece expanded, but he still has this crystalline focus on a voice and a style and a sound that is absolutely lucid and crystalline, whether it's voluptuous like the Rite of Spring or dis desiccated like this. So this is the Royal March from L'Histoire du Soldat. Curious, why do you think? Because this um, neoclassic neoclassical seems like the the apt uh, you know term for this because it feels compared to the pieces that we've just been listening to, this feels way tamer. Um, why did he go in this direction? Something went out of him after the ride of spring. I think that's the best way to explain it. Something happened to him. Mm. He had exhausted that vein. Um, he had also, the Russian Revolution had happened. His family lost everything. He left Russia and he turned away from that. I think the war did something to him. I have a theory though, that the riot at the Rite of Spring horrified him. It actually, 
uh, Mr. Vince, you recall that they went out to dinner after the premiere of the ride and Diaghilev said, this is exactly what I wanted. Couldn't be better. I think Stravinsky was horrified. And I think he had let him, this is entirely a theory of mine, that he let himself out emotionally and spiritually in the ride of spring with such power from inside himself and got slant and got, you know, paid off by, paid by a riot, even though the piece triumphed very quickly. Um, that he was not going to let himself out like that again. And he never wrote music that extravagant and emotional again. And he, and he finally came into a doctrine of that. He said, music cannot express anything definitely. Now he, he, he went against that statement. He contradicted it in his music over and over and over, but still there was a profound change. I mean, what, what what did that music say to you besides the fact it's using traditional chords? It's very melodic in a traditional way. Though it doesn't sound traditional, exactly, but it's it's definitely a march. Yeah, it, it has its quirks, um, but it it felt, uh, and I know the mentioned the Rite of Spring going into a you know a Walt Disney uh, movie, uh, but that felt like a very uh, that almost felt like something that would be composed in-house at, at like a Disney. <laughs> for, a, for a battle of dinosaurs, by the way, in Fantasia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, so I, I, it, I have to say, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't quite as electric uh, as the stuff in the beginning. It's very restrained. It is, did you see, did you hear how sardonic it is? It's really kind of funny and it's supposed to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. I when I it. first heard um, L'Histoire de Sol the Soldier's Tale, I was a little spooked by it. It is so dry. I found it kind of dusty and a little oppressive. And then I got into it and again, heard live. It has a surprising power. There's some fabulous melodic writing in it. And it is consistently ironic. It's very ironic music. Um, ironic to sardonic. So anyway, he changed and he pulled back. And um, one of the great examples of the kind of full-blown neoclassic style, it was symbolic as Diaghilev hired him to write a ballet based on music by the 18th century composer Pergolesi. So this is kind of the definition of Stravinsky and neoclassicism. He goes back to more or less the classical era and recreates it in this very fresh way that is nonetheless quite clear in its relationship to the past. So he's revisiting the past. Thank you. 
again, what do you get out of that? It, it I, I sort of had the, the same feeling I had about the last piece, which is that this is nice, but if this were the only exposure I had to Stravinsky, I, I would not, um, I wouldn't think he was anything exceptional. That's a good point. Well, a musician would because they would understand that the orchestration is just fabulous. It's just beautiful. But yeah, he's not, he's, he's retreating to the past. And by the way, some of the worst reviews I have ever read of any music were of Stravinsky's neoclassicism. A lot of people felt that he had, he had revolutionized music with the Rite of Spring especially, and then betrayed his own revolution with the neoclassic music. And he was reamed out for it by some critics in, in very personal and nasty ways. But he stuck with that for 30 years. And meanwhile, he and uh, you either lined up behind Stravinsky or behind Schoenberg, who was the more, the less audience pleasing, the more theoretical, supposedly, the more difficult composer. And Stravinsky was writing beautiful music at this point and very communicative and um, tr very much involved in tradition. And then two things happened. Stravinsky wrote, uh, his opera, The Rake's Progress, very much on the tradition of Mozart. And again, what you heard in Pulcinello were, were traditional harmonies with new kinds of spices in them. They're, they're turned in slightly strange and, and fascinating and colorful ways. So he was playing games of the past and traditional harmony and so forth. And he wrote, and it is not personal music. It's dry. It is impersonal. It's not terrifically... It's not warm and fuzzy music by and large. There's a certain quality of objectivity. And Stravinsky talked about all this. This is what he was aiming at. Then he broke down. Robert Kraft, who was associated with him, said he burst into tears sometime around the time of Reich's Progress, the opera, and said, I don't, I, I, I've written out, I don't know where to go. And Robert Kraft had been the secretary of Arnold Schoenberg and Schoenberg had died. And partly because of Schoenberg, his great rival was out of the way and Kraft's influence, Stravinsky started, turned to Schoenberg's 12-tone method. He, so it's as if for the musical world who had been divided between Schoenberg and Stravinsky in effect, and this is true, the entire creative musical world had lined up behind, mostly behind one or the other of them. It's as if the the general of one army went over to the other side and it shook music up from top to, top to bottom. It represented the triumph of serialism, which didn't really happen, but it seemed to be. In terms of composers, it was. The old neoclass composers who had lined up behind Stravinsky were mostly out of date at this point. So we go to Agon. So here was another ballet. Stravinsky was writing for... Um, Balanchine, the New York City Ballet. So Stravinsky was writing Agon. And again, this is a very, it, it was an abstract ballet, uh, no real story. Balanchine and Stravinsky did a lot of collaboration and they were very much on the similar page. Um, even though Balanchine had actually begun his career with Diaghilev. So Agon begins in really his, his neoclassic vein. It's kind of a wonderful beginning. Stravinsky has great beginnings that define a sound world in this very pure way. And you immediately 
are drawn into a very particular thing, whatever it may be. And this is that way too, but it still basically is neoclassic voice. So here's the beginning of Agon. So you're still hearing his tremendous imagination for orchestral color, his driving rhythm. Um, but in the middle of this piece, again, what would you say about that? Well, how did that strike you? I'm sure you don't know this piece. No, I don't. Um, it, it feels slightly more reminiscent of uh, the earlier work. It feels like there's slightly more surprises to it. Um, hmm. But again, I gotta say, I, it I, when you mentioned the fact that he was he was now turning to this twelve uh, tone technique, which not in this not, cut, not, not in this not, cut yet. Okay, um, it 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 doesn't. Uh, it, it's interesting when when you talked earlier about how something may have gone out of him after the rite of spring. Um, there is this study done of uh, creativity where they found, uh, they looked at like Nobel Prize winners, Pulitzer Prize winners, et cetera. And uh, they sort of differentiated them into two buckets. And the first were what they called visionaries. And these people had tended to have their success uh, when they were young. And they tended to have a fixed idea of like, okay, what is it that I want to create? Uh, what is it that like their driving idea? And then the other category were people uh, that they, they called experimenters. Uh, these people like Charles Darwin, who, came up with evolution in his 40s or 50s and was sort of just tinkering around for a long time and then stumbled upon something. It feels as though Stravinsky was more of a visionary who had an idea of what he wanted to do. And then once he had done that, it, it was almost like mission accomplished. And, yeah. you know, here we are. I think that's, I, I absolutely buy all that. And I know that study, I've thought about it a lot because it, um, among the illustrations are Picasso and Matisse. Yeah. Matisse, Picasso would just sort of start with a very clear idea. He didn't know how, quite how he was gonna do it, but he was, he was very clear about his goals. Matisse would just plunge into things and mess around and gradually things would emerge. And those are the two kind of artists you're talking about. And I believe that, I, I, I find that very compelling. Um, but so Stravinsky, when he turned to 12 tone, he did it absolutely full and he did it sort of in the middle of Agon. So we heard this very precise, concise, quite dry, but very colorful and, you know, compelling opening. But meanwhile, he had been, because of the influence of Robert Kraft, he was getting into his one time profound rival Schoenberg's 12-tone serial slash serial system. Right. And in a way, it happened in the middle 
of this ballet for Balanchine. So in a piece that began as another, though in some ways grander, um, neoclassic vein, suddenly he's beginning to write in a new voice for him, but one that's a little familiar in terms of serial music. He's beginning to move toward the other side of the mid-century equation between Schoenberg and Stravinsky. He's beginning to move toward Schoenberg uh, in this number from the from the ballet. And before we turn it on, could, could you explain briefly what you mean by serialism? Serialism is a technique that Schoenberg invented in the teens and 20s in which everything in a piece is based on an arrangement. There are only 12, there are 12 notes in Western music we call chromatic notes. Those are the, the notes available. And traditional scales use seven out of the 12 notes. Uh, but Schoenberg began to base his music on an arrangement of the 12 possible notes and he called it a row. And the idea was that everything in a piece, the melody, the harmony, everything would come out of that single thing, the row. And you could manipulate the row in various ways. You could, you could transpose it, you could move it around in pitch, you could do it upside down, you could do it backwards, you could do it backwards and upside down, which are traditional techniques, but he applied them to this new idea of a 12-tone row. But there were other things involved with it. In the case of Schoenberg, he wanted to avoid anything that smacked of traditional tonal, traditional harmony music. And he wanted to keep a steady level of dissonance. Of, of, in other words, he was not using traditional chords. He was using grittier, hairier chords. Though the reality is that 12-tone music doesn't have to use hairy chords. It just was his way of avoiding traditional ways of harmony. Um, and what Stravinsky had been doing is using the old scales and chords and, use, and tweaking them and twisting them in his own directions. He had been doing that in the neoclassic style for a long time, and this had tremendous influence. But now he went over to the Schoenberg uh, serial, and another word for 12-tone is serialism. Serialism implies an even more kind of um, relentless use of rows. Um, and the great hero of the serialist was Anton Webern, who wrote sometimes 30-second long pieces that were nothing but a few permutations of a row. And Stravinsky became one of Webern's big fans. The, the, the serial post-war, post-World War II serial movement is often called post-Webern because Webern's particularly esoteric and um, distilled use of rows was their ideal. And Stravinsky moved toward that. And, but he still did it in his own way. So in the middle of this kind of gen, gen, um, really kind of 
I would say open-faced, um, neoclassic music, suddenly he drops something that is harking to the other side of the equation, the serial composers. And here is an example of it in the middle, a pas de deux in the middle of the ballet. So do you hear the difference in that and the and the beginning we played? Oh yeah, it's kind of amazing. Those two things are in the same piece. Yes, it is. They really, in a way, stylistically don't fit. I mean, I love Agon, but it's not stylistically coherent in the way Stravinsky usually is. In what we just played, he's extremely aware of how he's laying out the pitches of the row, which are the the defining of the the generating element of everything that happens harmonically and melodically. So he changed. And the pieces he wrote after this uh, were his most kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Esoteric and um, austere music he ever wrote, his late serial pieces. I'm fond of them, but they're not warm and fuzzy <laughs> at all. Mm -hmm though often they still sound recognizably like Stravinsky. It's not, it's not like he's imitating Schoenberg exactly or Schoenberg's disciples, but he is, he's now in that world, that sound world and that gestural world. So what we've done is followed Stravinsky from the early Russian ballets, Firebird, uh, Firebird um, uh, Firebird, Petrushka and Rite of Spring, which were kind of three increasingly bold steps, all of which are among the most beloved pieces of the 20th century, by the way. And then turning away from that world to neoclassicism, and then turning away from neoclassicism to serialism late in life. What was consistent in these things? I mean, he went from a sort of, in a way, traditional ballet with, with uh, Firebird to a new kind of ballet and ballet music with Rite of Spring. And he ended up with Agon and what came after. Agon is a totally abstract ballet. It has no story at all. What unifies all these things, I think, are first of all, his enormous love of sound, of sheer sound. Stravinsky was in love 
with sound in a way that no, in a way maybe no composer before him had ever been. He didn't care as much about form. He cared about having marvelous sounds in his music. And he did, and that's true whether he's doing lush ballets or more austere neoclassic music or the very austere music of the late. It is still so much in love with the sounds that he's making. The other thing is a conciseness. He once said about his neoclassic style, it's true that it's dry, but that's the price you pay for precision. He became obsessed with precision, but the fact is he always was, even in the early ballets. The Rite of Spring for all its wildness and its you know, kind of primitivism is precise in what it's doing. Everything he did was precise. And the other thing is he was not really interested ever in what we call expressing yourself. He wasn't interested in traditionally emotional music at all. He never was. Um, the Rite of Spring is about a relentless um, um, ceremony that's going to kill somebody, and, and the ceremony is unforgiving. Um, the neoclassic music is really very, there's a great personality, it's Stravinsky's personality, but it's not a warm, it's not a, an intimate personality, it's a, it's a bit removed, and that was, I think, in a way that was consistent for his whole life and career. So the, those are the things that I find consistent in all these tremendous transformations, stylistic transformations that Stravinsky went through. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting to see the, the variety of styles in this guy's life. Um, the consistency that you point to, I think is real. I, I'm curious, do you think that he, uh, after those first three ballets, and he goes to this neoclassical style. Do you think he at all had a kind of frustration or a sense of being lost musically of like, okay, where, where do I go after this? He did af after 30 years of neoclassicism, after he wrote The Rake's Progress, which is an, his own version of a Mozart opera basically. And Robert Kraft said he burst into tears in the car and said, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I don't know where to go. Wow. And that's when Robert Kraft, who had been Stravinsky Schoenberg's secretary, said, here's a row. How <laughs> you investigate this? And that's where Stravinsky went. Now, some of the neoclassic music, by the way, in his neoclassic period, a certain amount of it is, is a bit, frankly, commercial. I mean, he wrote a piece for the Barnum and Bailey Circus Band. He wrote a piece for Benny Goodman. He wrote some pieces that that... I think made money and I don't blame him by the way, because Russia stole, who didn't have international copyright, stole the early ballets. Mm. And these pieces were performed all the world, all over the world and Stravinsky wasn't making any money from them, which is outrageous really. So he redid, I don't know if he redid Firebird, but he redid Petrushka and the Rite of Spring in the forties, he issued new editions that he was getting royalties on. And that's when he that's when he began to have a better living. He was not rich at all. And he should have been, he deserved to be. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
But all the same, and Diaghilev said about Stravinsky once, he said, ah, our ego, money, money, money. Yeah. He's just interested in money. But the reality, well, late in life, somebody offered Stravinsky $100,000, which is worth about a million now, to write another piece like um, Firebird, and Stravinsky said no. He said it would cost me more. Yeah. So he had integrity. There's no question about that. You talk about uh, this sort of playful rival rivalry with uh, Schoenberg. It wasn't playful. It was nasty. Okay. So it, at the end of, uh, you know, looking back from where we stand today, is there a, a quote unquote winner in terms of who, whose influence over musical history, like one out? Well, that's a very good question. Serialism didn't win. You know, it dominated the after after Schoenberg went into serialism, in the academy, serialism won. It became the focus in most of colleges. I mean, there were schools where if you weren't writing serious serial music by the '60s, you were not considered to be serious. And yet, serial music never had great popularity in audiences. It's not to say that audiences reject every serial piece. It's not true at all. I heard the Schoen I had a BSO about 25 years ago, a standing ovation for the Schoenberg Piano Concerto by Mitsuko Ushida, which is a piece that he actually wrote originally for um, Oscar. Schoenberg wrote the uh, Piano Concerto with Oscar Levant in mind. Oscar Levant studied with Schoenberg and wrote tw a tw at least one 12 tone piece. Um, and the, the Schoenberg Piano Concerto was, is pretty attractive for him. <laughs> All the same, I've heard I've heard audiences warming up to, to Schoenberg, but they'll never warm up to him as much as Stravinsky. It's just the way it is. Yeah, there, there's something a little bit more, I don't, I don't know, the, the Rite of Spring is just so, uh, it's emotionally captivating too. Yeah. You know. Well, it's visceral. It just, it just grabs you. It doesn't let you go. It's fantastic. Sound weird, but it's not emotional in the sense of heart and sleeve expression. That isn't it. It's very raw, and but it's, it's raw and voluptuous at the same time. There's just nothing like it. It's, it's, it's a piece that has never lost its, its ability to shock and excite. And that can't be said of a lot of pieces. Absolutely. Um, Jan, before we go, is there anything here that uh, we haven't covered? Uh, any any closing thoughts on uh, Stravinsky, the man, the composer? When he died, his widow got a letter from somebody, I can't remember whom, saying the world, for the first time since the death of Guillaume de Machaut in the 15th century, the world is without a great composer. Is that true? I think it may be, and there hasn't been anybody to take his place since. Though I, there are a lot of composers I'm, I admire greatly and whose music I love, but somebody who had his enormous impact on music and on the whole culture, um, there's never, there hasn't been a replacement. Well, I have a question on, on that note. I mean, so it seems like the history of a lot of Western art, not just music, but has been moving from a rules-based order to uh, 
I don't know if you call it chaos, but gradually moving away from those rules where, yes. you, you know, even in like poetry, you used to have meter and rhyme. And now those are totally thrown out the window. Uh, when you talk about serialism, it's like, okay, we're not, you don't have to have music in just a key anymore. Right. You get to things like John Cage where sounds don't really correspond to any meaning. They're just sort of there. Um, yes. Is it possible that the, the whole edifice has been brought down and we're sort of just like stomping on the ruins? Like where, where, where <laughs> does anyone go from here? I think stomping on the ruins is a great image. Well, I already said that I think if you're a composer, what you do is there are all the ruins of previous systems and ideas lying around, including Cage, but also including Stravinsky neoclassicism and Bartok and all these other things. And you you pick up bits and pieces of the past and assemble them into a voice. That, and that's I think that's the only choice. I will say that if you if you do agree that the kind of monumental composers that existed in the past and went up to Schoenberg, Berg, and Webern in that school, and Stravinsky and Bartok in the 20th century, these are all people who came of age writing traditional music, writing traditional tonal music. They came out of the old rules. That's where they began. And then they made new rules, but they knew that's because they knew how to make rules. And people who haven't studied any rules don't know how to make rules, I think, much of the time. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's part of the answer why there hasn't been a, a, a great composer since Stravinsky died. I mean, a certain amount of people are going to virulently object to that, who hear this maybe. And again, I'm a huge admirer of Ligeti and you know, various other people, but um, somebody who has, but culture has changed as well. In poetry, there's never been anybody again who had the impact of somebody like Robert Frost or Yeats because poetry is too diffused now. So it's partly the culture has changed and it has become impossible. When my mother died, she was a high school English teacher and I found when I was cleaning out the house, I found these stacks of articles about people like Frost and T.S. Eliot and Stravinsky and all these great figures. And they were all torn out of things like Life Magazine and Time Magazine because culture heroes were part of the popular culture then. Robert Frost was part of popular culture. And so was Yeats, really. Um, there's been a great division since then. Even though the Beatles have Stockhausen on the cover of Sgt. Pepper, because they were, it's one of the things they were interested in. Yeah, it's, I'm interested to see where that goes, because I, 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 I wonder if it's just because there's a lack of truly great artists or the culture has changed, maybe a combination of both, but there's gotta be people being born all the time who are capable of uh maybe not all the time but there has to be some people born every generation that are capable of um reaching these kinds of summits you'd think well who have who have enormous talent yes yeah but it's partly that the that the mechanisms of fostering talent don't exist anymore stravinsky would not have been stravinsky without diaghilev and the ballet russe that was some they were made for each other um 
Ravel wrote for the Ballet Russe. Debussy wrote for the Ballet Russe. Did he? Yeah, uh, yeah, he did. Um, so there also have to be mechanisms to foster talent, and that's what doesn't exist so much anymore. Though, you know, contemporary composers are played in orchestra programs and chamber music programs quite regularly. Yeah. Um, so musicians are interested in doing it, but, you know, having an orchestra or a musician who's interested in your stuff is different than somebody like Diaghilev commissioning you to write ballets that are going to be choreographed or danced by Nijinsky and, you know, with some of the greatest graphic designers alive. And, you know, it's a different thing. So that, I think I think what you're basically saying is correct. It's not for a lack of born talent and fostering talent. It's a lack, a culture lacks a mechanism for fostering talent the way it used to have. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge difference. You know, Beethoven grew up in Bonn, Germany, where he worked for the court. And the court was doing, had an orchestra and they had a choir and they had opera and they had plays. And it was, it was not a great place to make a, an, an international career, but it was a great place to become a, you know, very accomplished and, and experienced musician. And those kind of things don't exist anymore. Man, well... Here, here's to hoping something changes. Um, <laughs> well, there, here's the other side of the coin, though. Yeah. If you're a, if you're an artist, a visual artist, you can put a pile of dirt in the corner and make millions. Right. And um, how does that art relate to regular people's feelings and emotions? And it doesn't have to because it's entirely a matter of wealthy people investing in art because it's a it's a a um, an investment. Yeah, well, that's that's a shame unto itself. I mean, it is. It's obviously corrupting. It is obviously totally corrupting. Yeah. But that's what visual arts are now. Has it produced any great figures? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it's not my it's not my field. Well, uh, Jan, great discussion as always. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Um, and uh, is there anything you'd like to plug before we go? Any uh, new new books or website or anything like that? People who are interested in what I compose, you can find it online. And you can also find me yakking about a lot of other stuff online on YouTube. Nice. So my best piece and best performance is on YouTube. And at some point when I get around to it, I'm going to add more. So thank you for, for having me on. And thanks for good questions. And um, thanks for letting me run on. <laughs> Oh, my pleasure. Thank you to Jan Swafford, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.